what was the significance of Jackson's stance regarding the Second Bank of the U.S.? Yeah, the, so the bank war, Jackson's fight against the, the Second National Bank and its president, Nicholas Fiddle, is really one of the pivotal events, uh, particularly of his second term. Uh, his first term is entrenched in the nullification crisis, and there's a sex scandal, the Eaton Affair, that Jackson's involved in for about two years. Not personally, a sex scandal involving him personally, but one of his cabinet members. Um, he's dealing with um, Indian removal, uh, which continues into a second term. So the bank war really becomes the focus of his second term. Um, and the significance is that Jackson believed that the National Bank had had used its money. So, so the National Bank was a, a partly funded by, by private funds, but then also by federal funds, by government funds. And Jackson believed that Nicholas Fiddle, the president of the bank, had used the bank's money against him in the 1828 election, that Nicholas Fiddle had used taxpayer money uh, to try to help John Quincy Adams defeat Jackson in 1828. And that really serves as, as um, the core of Jackson's argument against the bank. Now, he extrapolates from there and talks about, you know, the bank has acquired too much power, uh, that the bank is pitting Americans against one another socioeconomically, the upper class versus the lower class. Um, he, he says, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the, that the bank is serving almost as a separate arm of the government, as a separate branch of the government. And so Jackson sees himself as president, as the direct representative of the people. He sees himself as someone who is protecting the people from this, this as he calls it, hydra of corruption um, that, that is trying to, once again, subvert the will of the people. Um, and so his, his focus on the bank is finding ways to limit the bank's power within his powers as chief executive of the United States. And he's pretty successful at it um, during his second term. He removes the government's deposits from the bank, uh, which he thinks will weaken it substantially. Um, Nicholas Biddle, the, the bank president, responds by creating some economic turmoil, uh, calling in loans, um, which creates uh, sort of an economic recession. Um, and this leads to Jackson being censored uh, by the Senate. Um, so he's not impeached, but he's sort of given the slap on the wrist, uh, chastised for overextending his authority as president. And it really causes a lot of turmoil, both for Jackson and for his successor, Martin Van Buren, um, as Van Buren comes into the presidency. So anyway, it, it's a very pivotal moment in Jackson's presidency, and it speaks to it speaks to this expansion of, of the president's power, and that. It's interesting because Jackson is someone who's a, who's pretty strongly a states' rights advocate, someone who throughout his career before the presidency talks about limited government. It's sort of ironic that as president, he does more than anyone up to that point as president to expand the authority of his office. Was Jackson familiar with the Bible, and did he use biblical rhetoric in his public Discourses, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, I'm reading actually a, a book manuscript right now by a good friend John Atkins, who is looking at Jackson's spiritual or religious life. Uh, so a lot of what I'll say really draws from from John's work. Um, 
Jackson is someone who um, is religious. Uh, well, he's spiritual. Um, so Jackson grew up with a mother who was a very strict Presbyterian. Um, in fact, she she had the idea that maybe Jackson would become a minister. Uh, that does not work out. Uh, maybe if she had lived, she could have steered him in that direction. But um, without her influence there, Jackson doesn't go anywhere close to that. Um, Rachel marries, I'm sorry, Jackson marries a woman by the name of Rachel Donaldson Robards, who is also a strict Presbyterian. So Jackson has these religious influences via these two women in particular um, who helped shape his life. He knows about the Bible. He obviously had read the Bible and continues to read the Bible, but he is someone who tries to keep separate his religious beliefs and his political beliefs. Um, Jackson is someone who believed very staunchly in separation of church and state. Um, for example, in 1832, there's a cholera epidemic in the United States. And so you have ministers uh, and congregations writing to Jackson, asking him to announce a day of prayer and fasting, asking him to, you know, implore the Lord to, to you know, save the American people from this, from this epidemic. And Jackson writes back to one of the one of the uh, correspondents and says, "You know, this is not my place as president. This is something that congregations can do, ministers can do, Americans can do, but as president, this is not my job." Um, and so I think that speaks to his belief in separation of church and state. But if you read his correspondence, if you read his messages, uh, his official papers, he invokes providence. You know, he talks about his belief in fate. He talks about his belief in an afterlife. Um, later in life, after the presidency, he actually joins a church. Um, and this is, unfortunately, for Rachel, after she has passed away, uh, because she had pressured him over the years to join a church, but he waits until after he leaves the presidency to do that. Um, so he is, he is someone who I think probably identified as a Christian, and certainly later in life does identify as a Christian, um, but he is someone who tries to keep separate his personal private beliefs from his, from his public actions. Did this uh, religious tolerance and the principle of separation between church and state, did that extend to non-Christians or even to non-Protestants? That's a good question. Uh, as far as, as non-Christians, I don't really know. Um, I, I did some research prior prior to speaking to you today, and it was it, I, I couldn't really find anything uh, in my research that spoke to Jackson's um, reflections on where on what role non Christians would play in in his belief system. Um, as far as non Protestants, uh, Jackson does believe in religious tolerance, and so. Um, I, I want to share with you a letter that he wrote in 1835, uh, and this comes from Tom Cohen's at the Andrew Jackson Papers, who shared this with me. Um, so this is a letter that Jackson wrote to Ellen Hansen. Ellen Hansen wrote Jackson um, this letter talking about the rumors that Jackson was um, someone who um, was supporting Catholicism, that he was someone who was Encouraging the Catholic immigration into the United States, which was a big issue um, that was starting up in the 1830s. So Jackson writes back to, to Ellen Hansen, uh, 
who had written on behalf of her grandmother. And I won't read the entire thing, but I'll read the, the pertinent part. Absolutely. So he writes, quote, I was brought up a rigid Presbyterian to which I've always adhered. Our excellent constitution guarantees to everyone freedom of religion. And charity tells us, and you know, charity is the real basis of all true religion. And charity says, judge the tree by its fruit. All who profess Christianity believe in a savior and that by and through him, we must be saved. We ought therefore to consider all good Christians whose works correspond with this professions, be him Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, or Roman Catholic. Let it be always remembered by your grandmother that no established religion can exist under our glorious constitution. So this letter to me, uh, in many ways, sums up Jackson's perspective religiously at that point in his life. He is someone who practiced religious toleration, at least for all Christians. He is someone who had a very core belief in what his Christianity meant. And he understood or believed that the role of religion within the United States was something that existed under the purview of the Constitution, but without government interference. Um, so as far as his religious toleration of, of, of other Christians who were not Protestant, yes, I definitely think he believed that. As far as those who were not Christian, it's hard for me to say, unfortunately. What is the legacy of Andrew Jackson as we look at his presidency in the year 2022? And were any presidents in modern times inspired in any way by Andrew Jackson? Jackson's legacy today um, is very contested. Uh, as anyone who's observed U.S. politics and U.S. society in the past decade, uh, maybe longer than that, knows Jackson has become or has been uh, for, for those years a pretty, pretty substantial historical figure. A lot of discussion about him, a lot of, a lot of discussion and debate about what is his place uh, in American society today. I think his legacy, um, first of all, he is someone who believed strongly in the Union. He is someone who wanted to see the United States survive. Um, and he took actions that he believed would perpetuate the Union. A second legacy uh, is the fact that he was an enslaver. Um, he was someone who was able to rise in society by his enslavement of African-Americans. Uh, his wealth, his land holdings, uh, in many ways, uh, his society, his position within American society was based on the enslavement of African-Americans. So that is another one of his legacies. The third legacy, of course, is his um, removal of Native Americans, his, his belief that Native Americans were not equal, that they were best shunted off to the West so that a white American society should flourish. Uh, and then lastly, I think, and this is where probably where most people see Jackson's relevancy today, is that his embrace of populist rhetoric, his embrace of um, this idea that the president represents the people, um, and the rhetoric that goes with that, that to me is, a, is, a, is one of the prime legacies today. Uh, as far as presidents who have um, seen him as a symbol or as an inspiration, certainly the obvious example would be Donald Trump. Um, I had the, the opportunity to attend 
Trump's visit to the Hermitage shortly after he became president. And I've told this story before. Um, I was standing in line afterwards, after the president had departed, I was standing in line for the restroom. And there were people behind me who were talking about how Trump had studied Jackson, how he was trying to emulate him. Um, and I think the reality is that a lot of the inspiration that Trump drew from Jackson came from other people. Steve Bannon probably was the one who was pushing that based on what we know. Um, but, but Trump embraced it. And I think in doing so, he, in some ways, um, took what Jackson talked about with populism and rhetoric and, and took it to its highest level. And so I'll give you an example. And this is one that I actually talked about with my, my students in my Jacksonian class yesterday. Um, so Jackson presented himself as a populist. He presented himself as a man of the people. Yet if you had visited him, you would have seen him, his huge mansion, you would have seen his huge plantation. You would have seen well over 100 enslaved people laboring for him. That was not a man of the people. Uh, he was someone who was an elite Southern gentleman. Um, in the same way, I think you see Donald Trump, and he's not the only politician who does this, but he's, the, I think, the prime connection with Jackson. Uh, Donald Trump is someone who is wealthy, um, who lives uh, or has lived in an apartment that was encrusted in gold, it seems like. Uh, he is someone who... Um, is not a man of the people, yet he is someone who understood that to connect with voters, he had to appear that way. And so he would appear at rallies with trucker hats, um, which doesn't really fit with someone who's a billionaire or even a multimillionaire, you know, wearing a trucker hat and, and engaging in rhetoric that is, um, that is not what normal presidents engage in. Yet he did that, I think, because he was trying to present himself as a man of the people. And so, again, whether there's a direct connection between Trump studying Jackson or whether he was just influenced by people around him, Trump tapped into something that I think Jackson introduced, which is this idea that if you want to appear, if you want to, to, to have voters uh, support you, you have to appear to be a man of the people, even if you're nowhere close to that. And so I think Jackson is the one who introduces that strain of American political thought, which I think was typified by Donald Trump. Just moving just a little bit uh, beyond Jackson, uh, did Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren, follow Jacksonian policies? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, what's interesting about Van Buren is that he was the architect of the party that Jackson led. So, so he had put together the coalition that had helped elect Jackson in 1828. Um, and he was, he was the prime mover and shaker behind this idea that you need a two-party system. You need a party um, that is correct, that is right. And for Van Buren and Jackson, that was the Democratic Party. But you also need an opposition party so that you can contrast yourself and say, here's why we're correct. Here's where we're right. Here's where we embody the vision of the United States best. Um, so, so as the architect of the Democratic Party, certainly Van Buren carries on many of Jackson's policies. For example, uh, under Van Buren, uh, you see the removal of the Cherokee take place on the Trail of Tears. Most people associate that with Jackson because he was the one who had set it into motion. 
but it's really Van Buren and his administration who carry it out. Um, Van Buren also continues the Second Seminole War in Florida, uh, which started under Jackson, but is continued under Van Buren and actually doesn't finish uh, or come to, to an end until after Van Buren leaves office. Um, Van Buren also continues the support of slavery. Um, he uh, modifies a bit Jackson's economic policies. Uh, unfortunately, Van Buren inherited uh, a lot of the problems that the bank war caused. Um, that leads to a huge depression during his presidency that really consumes him. Um, so he, he, uh, he mod- has to modify some of those policies that Jackson had put into place just because of different circumstances. But generally speaking, yes, Van Buren does follow Jackson's policies. And just as a, a final question, since we're on Martin Van Buren, how did uh, Van Buren react to the um, infamous Damascus love It's a great question. Uh, Here at the Van Buren Papers, we are still working on the early part of Van Buren's career, so we haven't gotten to those documents yet. So we may uncover more than than what was previously um, researched. But uh, from what we know, uh, Van Buren uh, instructed the Secretary of State um, to send a message to the consul there who spoke out strongly against uh, this this anti-Semitic accusation that that took place during the Damascus affair. Um, I'm hoping that we can uncover more. This is honestly one of those aspects of Van Buren's presidency that doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, In preparation for today, I went back and looked through the biographies that have been written about Van Buren, and it's really just passed over either without comment or with one or two sentences. So I think that this is this is a good area of research, and hopefully the Van Buren papers will be able to help uh, you and other people understand it better once we get to that point. Okay, great. We look forward to, uh, to hearing about that in the future. Uh, again, we can go on, but uh, again, thank you so, so much, uh, Andrew Jackson Southerner uh, by uh, Professor Cheatham. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I urge all our viewers and listeners, as I do, just go on to Amazon, click a button, and it comes right to your house. Again, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.